Hey, what's up? Welcome to the 28th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of today. And the new guest is Rick Riley, the former Sports Illustrated ESPN writer, an 11-time National Sports Writer of the Year, and for my money, the best pure feature writer of my lifetime. Dating back to my SI days, I've never known anyone who can roll out a narrative with the humor, with the empathy, with the passion, and the compassion of Rick. So I really want to delve into the art of storytelling, of taking a subject and allowing it to blossom on the page. Rick and I met up at a little diner, Scotty's, in Hermosa Beach, so don't be alarmed if someone offers up a refill of coffee or you hear a baby in the background. It's real, it's in-depth, and it's right now on Two Writers Slinging Yang. All right, so Rick, I want to uh, I want to start. By the way, we're sitting in a diner. It's in California. Life could be worse, you know. Uh, there's girls in bikinis playing volleyball yeah, right out there. There's paddle boarders. There's dolphins. It's pretty good. Yeah, they're really annoying us. We're, we're not in Alabama. Right. Yeah, we're not in Alabama today. <laughs> Come on, Alabama's the greatest place on earth today. Today it is. So um, I want to start with a story, and you probably don't remember this, but this is my favorite Rick Riley Sports Illustrated moment. Um, because we lived in different parts of the country. I was coming up. You said blah blah blah. It wasn't like we had a ton of engagement when we were at SI. I'm in the Florida Marlins clubhouse during a spring training. I almost guarantee you won't remember this, and it's one of my, I've told this story about a thousand times. And I'm with Josh Beckett. Do you remember Josh Beckett? And Josh Beckett was pissed off at SI, and he wouldn't talk to SI, but I knew Josh Beckett, so they sent me to do a profile. And what he was mad about was that he didn't, SI at their Super Bowl party in Miami wouldn't allow him to bring like 12 guys in with him, and he was really pissed off. And he told me he was really pissed off. He was just a World Series MVP. It's bullshit, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and you were in the Marlins clubhouse for some reason, spring training. This is a true story. And you uh, you said to me, oh, can you do you know Beckett? Can you introduce me to Beckett? Maybe you need to talk to him. Or do you know him? I'm like, yeah, no, can you And you come over. And I go, hey, Rick, um, this is Josh Beckett. I go, Rick, you didn't go to the SI uh, Super Bowl party, did you? And you, you go, did I? Man, okay. it was the best party ever. <laughs> and Beckett is just seething. I you just walked right into it. It was so good. Oh, no. Yeah, so anyway, I love Sorry that. Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's all good. God, the people don't know. Sports Illustrated used to throw the greatest Super Bowl parties. They sort of invented them. Yeah. I, were they that good? They were so good. Like the first couple of years, I remember in San Diego once, they rented a restaurant right in the, right in the uh, old gasoline district or whatever it's called. And there were just people, there were a thousand people trying to get in. It was just models, right. athletes, and a couple and of writers. Hack writers like right. us. And people ended up dancing on the bars. And, and then it became this 5,000 people at a Bud Light tent, and it just got really bad. But for a while there, it was amazing. Wait, how good was SI before? Not the writing, but how? Because I feel like writers who come up now who are younger than us, I don't even think they could fathom the sort of. Almost the royal treatment that you got when you were an SI writer back in 97, 98. How good was it? Well, it's just such a different world. There was only one real sports magazine anybody read. There was three channels. Right. You know, there was no blog, Twitter, Facebook, podcast, nothing. And, and SI was, was the, the Mount Olympus to go to. And so they paid like crazy. Here, here's how different it was. They wanted you. 
to spend five thousand dollars a year entertaining people. Right. And they would get mad if you didn't get to the five thousand because you know they're going to take it from us next year. So spend the five thousand. So December would come and we're just taking out any athlete we can find. I can remember taking uh, Gary Sheffield. Remember him? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, Our omelets are here. Yeah, that's me. Yep. Thank so you. I had to. Gary, I need to. Thank you. I need to spend two hundred dollars. We gotta go out to dinner. Bring some friends. So he brought his, his girlfriend or something, his wife or something, and, his, and a buddy. Nothing was open. We had to go to Denny's. Seriously. We went to Denny's. He said, "Ma'am, do you have any wine?" Yeah, we got wine. And it was a twist off those little bottles. They were like four dollars each. I'm like, "Ma'am, you gotta do better." Than this. Oh my god. And we couldn't make it. Right. But anyway, it was just a different life. You had sometimes two months to do a story. Now you barely get two minutes before they want you to tweet. Right. They wanted you to work on the story for a long time, right? I mean, they wanted you to. Yeah. Thank you. And plus, we had so many guys. Right. You know, they wanted they wanted everyone to get get in the magazine, and so hey, take take a month off. I can remember Richard Hoffer going. I've tried so hard not to make the phone ring. Remember Richard Hoffman? Yeah, of course, great writer. All he wanted to do was read and drink scotch. Right. He was a great, great writer. And I remember he had spent seven days with Barry Bonds. And Bonds wouldn't oh, yeah. talk to him for seven days. Yeah. And on the eighth day, he talked to him. He goes, those were the greatest seven days of my life. Oh, that's awesome. The guy wouldn't talk to me, and I was able to drink scotch. That's awesome. Actually, you know, I um, so Bonds didn't talk to SI. Yeah, we're good. Delicious. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bonds wouldn't talk to Sports Illustrated. And they sent me to try to do a story on him because I had a friend who was friends with Bonds. And Bonds blew me off for three or four days in a row and finally talked to me. And it turns out just fed me utter bullshit, you know, about like how he was clean and blah, blah, blah. I feel like you're better off. And oh, the best part is I write the story. Remember Mike Bevins, the editor of Mike Bevins? Sure. I spy it and I'm leaving San Francisco and I get a call from Bevins early in the morning. Perlman. If he wanted to give Barry Bonds a fucking blowjob, we would have brought him to New York. There was women that talked like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'll never forget Bonds, my God. And Jeff Kent telling me, man, wouldn't even know the guy. Right. He's got his own rules. He's got his own TV set. He's got his own part of the locker room. I remember I was there with him one time trying to get anything good out of him. And one of the Alou brothers was a manager. You remember? Oh, Felipe. Yeah. Felipe comes in. Mm-hmm. He's got a ball to sign. I don't sign balls. Blew off the other team's manager. That's awesome. I don't sign balls. God, he was a beauty. Kent said they had to cyber him into the team photo because he wouldn't show up for the team photo. Yeah. Had to cyber the guy in. Just a bad guy. Very a bad guy. Um, so, you know. Now, now Giants fans. Oh, yeah, he was a bad guy. When he was on their team. Come on, lay off Barry. Right. Well, you know, we always love our own, you know, I guess. Is that the. Um, wait, you were just telling me a story, so I'm, I'm going to go through it. You told me you, um, you caddied for Donald Trump. Yes. All right, so what's the, uh, for your book? There's a book called Who's Your Caddy? And I'd known Trump for years. And for us in sports, we had seen him at Pipes, we'd seen him in the USFL, you know, this and that, like your book about... He was always a lot of fun. But because he was just such a blowhard. Right. Like the crazy things he'd tell you, and, you know, the, the, the lies he'd... And you'd like, oh, yeah, sure, Donald, you know. But he was, he was always a big ball. He, he lived. I remember once I was in his office. I'm just thinking of this story. He's like, check this out. He throws down a yellow laminated card. and says, it's from McDonald's. Bearer eats free at any McDonald's in the world. And he goes, there's only three people in the world have this card. You know how he does. Mm-hmm. Lying his ass off. 
Uh, me, Mother Teresa, and Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, really? I'm going to have to red check that, Donald. He goes, seriously, seriously. I go, besides, what are you going to do? You take this, your limo through the drive-thru, you're going to go to McDonald's. You're going to go to the Beijing McDonald's, and the guy's going to say that'll be a hundred won. You're going to go, not so fast, and throw it down, and throw it in apple pie. You're never going to use this. But he just he kept his wallet up, and he never used it. That's just the kind of guy he was. There was a picture of him with, I don't know if you saw this, on Air Force One eating a Big Mac recently. So maybe he does. Oh, maybe he did. Yeah. Maybe he did, yeah. So anyway, he wouldn't let me caddy for him because he had nobody to play with, so I got to, I had to play with him. Right. And uh, good golfer. Yeah. Absolutely, the score he said he shot was nowhere near the score he shot. Right. I mean, I think he said he shot 78. He probably shot 85, 86. But I've never seen a guy take so many cheats. Like he would, uh, he'd say, give me a four. Like, but you made six. I was keeping score. Yeah, but I take one newspaper four a day. <laughs> what the hell's that? <laughs> I was in close once for a birdie on a par five, and he was off the green and laying already four. And he goes, well, that makes this good. We were playing a, a bet, a score bet. He goes, that makes this good. Like, you're taking a gimme chip in? It's the first gimme chip in in history. Right. I've never heard of it. And there was, a, oh, you moved. Oh, that bird flew too low. Let me take another one. My foot slipped. <laughs> and then as soon as we got back, I shot 78. Shot 78. Yeah, right. Was he likable? He's kind of likable. Yeah. I remember he, uh, we were at his course in New York. And uh, he was always stopping to talk to different people who were working on the course, either yelling at him or praising them. And um, he got out of the cart, and I was like, oh, I'm not getting out this time. And he's talking to these three guys working on a path. And uh, they come back. He goes, gave me 50 bucks. Now they're the Donald Trumps of Chile. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, if you say so. Right. That's so funny. And now he's president, so you have that. Uh, you and know. now he's president. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, I wrote on a, I, I hate to say this, I tweeted this out the other day. My... Uh, See, I think of you, I feel like a lot of people, because there's your later work, think of you as a columnist. And I think of you as a feature writer. 100% I think of you as a feature okay. writer. Um, you know, when I came to SI, you were a feature writer. I feel like your, your, your features really influenced my sort of way of thinking about reporting, how to approach the story. And I consider the my all-time favorite, by far, by far, is, um, I have it right here, Heaven Help March Shot, Cincinnati's owner is a Red Menace. Which you wrote in SI on uh, May 20th, 1996. I just want to read the lead real quick. Alone in her bedroom, alone in a 40-room mansion, alone on a 70-acre estate, Marge Shot finishes off a vodka and water, no lime, no lemon, stubs out another carton 120, takes to her two aching knees and prays to the men. To Charlie, the husband who made her life and then ruined it, he taught her never to trust. To Daddy, the unsmiling father who turned her into his only son, he taught her never to be soft. To Dad Shot, the calculating father-in-law, who she may have loved most of all, he taught her never to let herself be cheated. I pray to them every night, honey, she says. How many owners do that, huh? Hit their knees every night. <laughs> and what I really love... And she let us go in there once she prayed. You actually were in her yeah. bedroom. Yeah. I just, like, March Shot... What I think is really interesting about this story, I just read it this morning again, is like, you took this figure who was largely sort of reviled, you know, and they found the Nazi armband and her thing. And yeah, she showed it to me. Yeah, she showed you the Nazi and she was like, it's kind of racist and blah, blah. And it's like, you walked in with sort of an open mind to, there's more to this person than just the Nazi. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yes. How do you do that? Well, first of all, Marge Shaw was the owner of the Cincinnati Reds. Right. And she, she got it when her husband died. She really didn't know anything about baseball, and even as the owner didn't know anything about baseball. I mean, she'd have to be introduced to players that she had just signed. Right. And, 
walk around with that big dog Shotzi and, and take Shotzi through the buffet line in the in the dining. What are you, what are you doing? Right. And I remember her her general manager was Jim Bowden. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Bowden twice twice a game would have to come to the luxury box where we were sitting. Giant luxury box, just me and her, because nobody liked her. And Bowden would come and take Shotzi for a walk. And he'd come back and report, and she'd, he'd, she'd go, well, and he'd go, two tinkles, one poop. <laughs> he'd have to report. Right. The general manager of the Cincinnati this, Reds. This baseball genius man had to right. do this. And I can remember her uh, going through the trash baskets and yelling at people because they hadn't written on, written on both sides of the paper, duct taping carpet down that was ripping up, uh, wearing socks from her dead husband's drawer. So she was, she was just an unusual person. But she, she had such pressure on her to kind of be a guy, like her father wanted to be a, a man that was going to run it in, with an iron fist. But really, she didn't know how to do that. She was so mistrusting of everybody. The reason she was alone in that 71-room mansion, she fired all the help. And I said, why'd you fire him? You can't trust him. You can't trust those kind. And of course, she was talking about people of color. Right. I remember we were sitting in a... In a, in a rib restaurant in Montgomery and uh, she sees a table full of young Asian college kids. She goes, I don't like that. I'm like, what, what don't you like, Mrs. Shaw? <laughs> she goes, uh, I don't like how those they come to our country and outdo our kids, those Asians. Like, Mrs. Shaw, you know I have an Asian daughter. I told you that. Not yours. Right. Yours is fine. Right. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, but um, the one thing I always loved about writing long but you could really like my favorite movies it's a wonderful life and george bailey is a character who's both bad and good but he's got all kinds of shades and you can't it, it, all of us have good and bad and we can I'm, good we're doing good yes please all of us have different shades so you you gives you room to breathe and show the good the bad the troubles the, you know the vulnerabilities the strengths of, of anybody right and but how are you able to go into a story? All right, like, I've been asked this before, you know, when I wrote the John Rocker story, right? Right. And you sit there, and you're hearing this person talk, and you disagree with everything they say, right? right? And yet somehow you're able to almost keep a distance, to almost not... I'm not sitting there saying, why well, I disagree with well, I disagree with that, and I disagree with that, and I disagree... Well, you can't. With, right? You can't, right? No. So is that it? You just sit there and sort of absorb and turn off your... Yeah, I think you have to be a canvas against which they get to paint their life for you, and, and at the end you look at the canvas. And even in a, in a long piece, you can't come out and go, this is reprehensible, what an idiot. I can't say, Mark Schott is a racist, we caught her cheating. Our investigate the report I did got her suspended from Chevrolet for two years because she was hiding cars that she hadn't really sold in order to get bonuses. But anyway, you can't say all that. You have to be subtle. You know, it's like the story about the the, uh, the black and tan guard of Scotland, and they could cut off your head, but you wouldn't know it until you tried to turn your head. So subtle, you know, clean. Yep. And your job as a, as a feature writer was not to to draw the opinion out. To say your your job was to paint the story so that people could come to the opinion that you wanted them to have of that person. So by example, by showing, telling was. Terrible. Now I'm writing screenplays, it's even more. 
show, show, show when you're writing. Show, never, don't tell. Never preach, never tell. But are you trying to get them to come to an opinion? or are you to, Are you trying to get them to come to the same opinion that you have? I guess not the same opinion, but to show the person as they are, as they truly are. Like, I can remember doing ten pages on Brian Gumbel. Yeah. And I had no idea what the guy was like, and I spent a week with him. And in some ways, he was brilliant, and he was so smooth and quick. And in other ways, he, he was he was a, a person who didn't like others. Right. Like, his wife would have dinner parties, and he wouldn't come out of the den. Or he told me I'd walk into, I can walk into a party of 100 people and realize there's not one person I want to meet. I'm like, wow. Right. Okay. But you can't say that in a piece. You can only draw, show the, paint the picture. Right. And let people decide for themselves. Right. Interesting. So when you're, when you're hanging around with Mark Schott, are you, are you able to see the good in someone who is that awful? Hmm. Yeah. Sure. And, and the tough situation she was in, alone, no, 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 no family members. She was absolutely alone in that job. She thought this is how you were a good boss. Right. It was definitely not how you were a good boss. But she did things like she drank too much. And I remember one day she said, we're going to, come with me. I'm going, where are we going? A pro-smoking rally. I'm speaking. Like, pro? Yeah, pro, come on. It's 10 in the morning. She's driving this old crappy Chevy. She's about five foot nothing. Yeah. She's already a little loaded on the Kamchatka vodka. She's got a cigarette going. She's got one in the ashtray going also. Shotzi's in the front seat. I'm in the back. I think Shotzi's got one going. <laughs> They're smoking. She can hardly see. She's looking under the steering wheel of this car. And she started beer off, beer into the next lane. Which is, she, I remember the guy was in a white Ford Tempo. I think it was called a Tempo. And he's going into the retaining mall. And he's honking at her. And she's smoking and she's talking and we can't see. And I'll be, Mrs. Shot, Mrs. Shot, the guy next to you is honking. She looks over. She thinks it's a fan. She goes, go Reds. <laughs> go Reds. This guy's white with fear. I love that. Do you, Are you taping as you do this? Are you taking notes? Like, how do you, like... I always took notes because, handwritten notes, because I always felt when you got the tape recorder out, people got much different. You know, they became different people. You know, one thing I learned, I remember doing Dick Vital, Dick Vital. Like a profile on him? The, the interview, I always tell young people, the interview doesn't end when you say, okay, thank you. It's all the time you spend with him. It's the way he deals with other people. I remember being at a game with him, doing an interview, and he goes, great, we're done for now, right? Yeah. You want to take a leap. And the whole time in the bathroom, he's commenting on what he saw in the first half for everybody in the bathroom. Right. Bobby Knight should have taken a T.O. The general screwed up, baby. Flush, you know. The interview never ends as long as you're with the person. Right. And you've told the begin in the beginning, everything that we do, I always said this, whatever happens is on the record. I never go off the record, okay? Right. And they get used to you being around. I remember John McPhee wrote this great piece about native dance for the horse. And he ended it with, and as they brought Nadim, the great horse, through the stables, and, and a trail of admirers following Nadim Dancer, it was nice to hear the groom in another stable combing out his horse and saying, you a good horse, too. <laughs> I mean, there's just, yeah. you, you got to look all the time. I think that's what really good writing is, just being aware of everything you see, hear, feel, you know. So when you interview people. someone, are you paying attention more to them, as much to the mannerisms as you are to the words? Absolutely. And stuff? Yeah. yeah. 
touch their face and looking around, uh, constantly taking. Remember the great uh, piece of somebody in uh, Rolling Stone on Warren Beatty. <laughs> Warren Beatty was so calculated in the interview, so worried about how he would come off, so pretentious that he that the guy would ask him so. They say you've slept with over a thousand women. Is that true? Forty-seven second pause. He put in parentheses. Oh, that's really good. Answer. Right. Because the pause is as important as the answer he gives. Right. Right. Because it's all about. I mean, they say communication is seventy-five percent nonverbal. Like I study Italian. It's how people they touch their face. They do this. Fingers. Their arms. You can understand a lot of Italian without it speaking a word. And same with the way people talk. Like, are they looking you in the eye? Are they back? Are they looking around, like, looking over your shoulder? What are they worried about? Why, where did they sit? How come they sit? There's so much more to an interview than just the words. Right. Do you, do you ever feel like, like, sometimes I feel like I am a salesman. You know, like, selling, like, used cars. Like, I'm working on a story now, and I'm trying to get people to sort of open up to me. And it's been really hard, right? Because it's not something they would want to talk about. Right. And I feel like in a way, and like, it might be to their advantage not to talk to me, you know? But I really want them to talk to me. And sometimes I, I do think, I step back, especially as I get older, and I think, am I really doing anyone, anyone any good here? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, Marge Shot, was she better off talking to you with this story? I don't know. You know, you could argue no. You know, like, or yeah, I don't even, you know, like. She was definitely not better off because she got suspended, the Nazi armband right. thing, all that happened. But... All those people that had to work under her are better. Totally unfair conditions. That's an interesting point. Turned off the heat at five o'clock and they'd freeze and, that, and they had to stay till ten. Mm. That's not fair. Right. Um, you know, her bringing Shotzi out to see Barry Larkin in short and he would poop on the short and yeah. Barry Larkin's having a poop. That's pretty really awesome. Crazy stuff. Right. So, but I know what you mean. And um, I had a I had a, a method for that, making them trust you, which was. I would always talk to the people around them, yeah. the driver, their friend, yeah. the wife, be as interested in them as I was with it. And they like that because then they, they see that you realize they have a real life. There. And was it an actor where you were actually interested in them? It was because you never know what you're going to get. I mean, my God, Freddie Couples, if it wasn't for his wives, we'd never get anything from him. Right. Uh, same with Tiger. You, you had to be around the caddy, the friends, the, the mother. Yeah. I can remember we'd always talk to Tita. Until she stopped talking to the press, but we'd always go, uh, Tita, what'd you think of your son's play today? Boy, And she'd always go, Boy, take their heart. Wow. I just love that line. Right. Boy, take their heart. That's very good. And and Earl was the greatest quote ever. And of course, Tiger was been famous since he was two. He, he stopped giving you anything good. Right. The first year I was on tour. Right. You as a guy who covered a ton of golf, like, does a the Tiger plight make you? Sad, happy, neither, both, you know, sort of the, the rise and fall, the kind of the public shaming. You know, Tigers, I can't imagine what it would be like to be famous since you're two years old. I mean, you're just, you're not a regular person. I mean, he's on the Mike Douglas show or whatever it was. Yeah. That's incredible, too. And he's famous, famous all the way through. And so his, how can I say this? His moral compass was, was off. Like, doesn't tip. Did you know that even when you were covering? No, him? you get to know him. Doesn't tip. Um, uh, never pays his part. Just gets up from the meal and leaves. Uh, he he um, 
He's just a guy that always has a really, really filthy joke for you. Right. And doesn't wait for you, you to talk. He just tells it and gets out. Right. Um, and, of course, he stopped talking to me and a million other people pretty early on. But uh, he, even, even the sex scandal he got in was because he thought he was, well, because he's cheap. He's cheap, and he thought he was above doing what most people do. So he had all these girlfriends, which is wrong. But the reason they ratted him out, the one girl wanted, asked for $250 to move out on her boyfriend to get move into a new apartment, yeah. and he wouldn't do it. Yeah. And she got so mad, she went to the National Enquirer. And then that started the whole snowball rolling. So, you know, I'm a big karma guy. You know, he his friends say he's a great guy, but I mean... Phil Mickelson signs win or lose for 25, 30 minutes. I mean, even after Wingfoot, when he blew it with a double bogey in the last hole, he signed, right. and I stood there. It takes a court order to get Tiger to stop for anybody. Right. So he seems, in this latest iteration of Tiger, much more relaxed. Yep. Seems much more... I've seen his smile more already than in some years. And uh, so I really hope he's... He's at peace and he's he's happy. Don't even think like uh, you said something about talking to different people. I always think like when I was writing a lot about Bonds, I remember I think it was a pitcher named Russ Ortiz said to me. I asked him what he thought about Bonds, and he said, "Well, he's always been good to me, right?" And I always think that's the worst judge of a guy's car. How he is to uh, right. you? To me, it's like how are you to the doorman? How are you to the guy driving the car? Yeah, Don't you think yeah, like that is? Right. I think you learn more about a person when you're writing about them, okay. watching them. Like, I, there was a funny, Chris Ballard wrote a story years ago, I think I've made fun of him about this, about Ray Allen. And he said, Ray Allen's the kind of guy who even holds the door, no, even says hi, says hi to the guy who opens the door to the clubhouse, to the locker room. But I thought, you're supposed to say hi. Like, what do we think of athletes yeah. if we're giving credit for a guy saying hi to the guy who holds the door for him? Like, you know? I hate this terrible excuse people give, well, you know, you catch him on the right day. Yeah, horrible. You know, you catch him in a good mood, he's the great. No. Right. You don't get to have a ton of mood. Right. You're supposed to be nice to him. Right. In, so you can be angry or something, stay in bed. Right. Yeah. We allow douchebaggery yeah. out of athletes because they're famous and big. It's kind of weird. Right. Um, I remember once I wrote about Dale Murphy. Um, and I wanted, I said, Dale, I, I need a week. He says, I, I'm not going to do it. But but I, I hope you'll come to dinner at my house tonight and I, and I can explain it to you further. Wow. He's turned me down. Right. And he invited me to dinner. Right. And of course, well, I got the interview anyway because he turned out to be the most nice, decent right. guy. But he's like that to me, the president, uh, the guy that cleans his car, whatever it is. He's, right. He was always nice. And there's, I always say this about sports 99% of people in sports are wonderful people right. because they have to get along inside a team. I mean, people, it's such a bad rap sports kids. These are great people, disciplined. You know, I always, always, you know, during 9-11 on that flight that, that crashed in Pennsylvania, the four guys who rushed the cockpit were all athletes. Yeah. yeah, they were all athletes. They made a plan. They executed the plan, and they saved, because that plane was headed for the U.S. Capitol building. My niece was working that day in the Capitol building. If it wasn't for those guys getting the courage come up with a plan and execute it in the face of their own death. Right. My niece might not, might not be alive. Right. So athletes are disciplined, terrific team players. And so a couple of bad guys like Bonds and 
hard shot. It shouldn't reflect on the rest of them. But you, am I, you wrote a column where you approached, I wasn't going to ask about it, where you literally went up to Sosa and offered him the chance to take his drug test. Am I wrong on um, that? Yes. He had been saying, you remember, before testing, I can't wait to be tested. I want to show people that I'm clean. Okay. Right? And I... You came up with the idea, I'm going to give him the I chance. I checked and I found a clinic that was 10 minutes from Wrigley Field. Okay. And I had the address, and I said, Sammy, you said you want to be tested. We can go to, We can go after the, after the game. Wait, time out, though. I have to ask a question. You never... See... I don't love confrontation. You know this isn't going to end well, right? Like it's not like you think he's going to be like, "All right, Rick, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the." Twenty-five percent of me thought maybe he's sincere. Right. Maybe he really did go from the forties to the sixties in home runs. Forties went from the twenties. That's, right, yeah, right, right, that's right. right. Maybe he really does want to be tested because otherwise, why would he be saying that? So there was a part of you that actually thought he might take. I your did. Run. I even said. We'll go to, it'll take, they say it'll take eight days for the test to come back. I will write the column in eight days about how you're clean. So you actually went up to him and said this to him. Yeah. And he looked at me and he started getting this vein in his head throbbing. And then he just started screaming at me in Spanish. And then the only thing English was, uh, are you my fucking, are you my fucking father? You're not my fucking father. I don't do what you say. And screaming, he picked up a bat and the whole clubhouse like gathered in a big circle. But you can't go around saying, I want to be tested. And then when a guy says, let's go test. But you knew there was a chance this would happen, this reaction chance, would be there. But that was the main story that year. Right. Remember? Yeah, of course. Antro, what was it called? It was uh, on uh, Dante Bichette's law. Yeah, yeah, Andro right. and McGuire's law. That was the story. That was everything. And they were turning the record book into a comic book. And I love the old records. Yeah. I mean... Stan Musial, yeah, right. you know, skinny guy who hit over 500 home runs. And this guy goes from 20 and 30 to 60. Come on. Right. Give me a break. I always think it's and crazy. And as it turns out, everything about Sammy Sosa was fake. Everything. His bat, yeah. his records, and it turns out his skin color. Yeah, I Because know. now he's suddenly pink. Yeah, it's very weird. He's nuclear. He looks like the fallout. North yeah. Korea actually tested their weapon on Sammy Sosa. It's like he's chugging Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> um, you heard a story... A shout-out to my friend Mike Lewis, who considers this the greatest story ever written in sports, about the Citadel, 1992. Um, I'm going to read a tiny bit. I don't like being this, but... Freshman Chad Smith knows why he's hanging from his closet shelf by his fingers at 3 in the morning, with his legs bent and spread. It has to do with football. The Citadel hasn't lost a Wofford... Wofford? Wofford? Wofford game since 1958. In fact, I'd never lost the Wofford game at home. But tonight it did. As usual, somebody has to pay. As usual, it's a freshman. That part he understands. What Smith wants to know is, what is it? What is that coldness I feel now uh, and again down between my thighs? Smith is hanging because of football and duty. Um, Turns out to be a sword. Yeah, it was a sword hanging between his leg. Or, um, isn't it insane? So I'm reading this story, which is so good. And I'm thinking... I'm thinking you're reporting this, thinking this is all such bullshit, but I'm not really going to say it's bullshit. But I can't, because there's a part, there's a big part. The funny thing about the Citadel is it's a quote-unquote military academy. But it has no military affiliation. Zero. Right. It'd be like you and I sitting here in uniform saying we're, we're right. training. Um, what do you remember about that piece? Well. Why'd you even write it? I got a letter. Someone said, you have to do something about, you have to tell the world about the Citadel. And she talked about her son had been made, he missed a field goal, and he was made to march. He said, she said, the sophomores are in charge of discipline of the freshmen. The sophomores are 19 freaking years old. Right. My son is having, he's going, he had to quit. He's undergoing therapy. He's a wreck. 
He was made to march in the, in the main square for 12 straight hours. Uh, he's being harassed. He got beaten with a pillowcase full of oranges. I'm like, what? So I called her up. She said, it's madness. It's Lord of the Flies down there. Right. So I went to Charleston for a week, and um, somehow we got in the paper that I was around doing a story, and uh, people started calling me in my hotel room. Wow. Uh, you got to hear this story. You got to know that story. And it just came in. We double check them all as we did. I don't know if they do that now, right. but is that how the Chad Smith story came in? The guy hanging from that. Yeah, the guy hanging. Um, there were so many amazing, horrible things that were going on. And then they let me sleep in the barracks for a night. And how? Like why did they allow that? I asked, could I sleep in the barracks to see what life was like? And guys came to my room, locked the door, told me amazing, horrible stories about what the hell was going on at the Citadel. And it was an institution that was out of control because somebody had decided sophomores got to haze freshmen all year long. It wasn't like University of Georgia where they might haze them for the first right. two weeks. Right. It was all year long. I mean, just brutal stuff. People coming apart. And um, I was I'm very proud of that story because no one had written this. Right. And I remember Pat Conroy calling me. And he told me stories and he, he helped. Did he, he go to the Citadel? Yeah, right. Lord, remember Lords of Discipline? Yeah. He wrote a letter to the editor in the Charleston's paper. He wrote, well, they let the wrong guy sleep in the barracks. That's awesome. <laughs> and it was great. And then a, a high school senior, woman, girl, read the story and decided her name was uh, Heather something Faulkner, Shannon. Oh, yeah, I remember this. And she decided she was going to... She's going to go. She's going to be the first girl to ever attend. And... They hazed her out. She quit in four months. Yeah. And it's hard there. Right? Some of the thing that was making it hard was totally not fair. Right. So, when you write a story like that, do you, no one, do you ever worry about the backlash? Do you ever think while you're working a story, shit, there's going to be some real backlash, or people are really going to be pissed off, or I'm going to have to deal with the bullets that come from this, or never, never, never. Why is that? I don't, I don't care about my Twitter mentions. I don't care what people say on radio. Because I'm just trying to write the truth. Right. And if you're worried about the reactions, your only governor can be the truth. If you're worried about, ah, oh, geez, how am I going to shape this so I don't get yelled at? Especially in this day and age. Yeah. When there's trolls and everyone just lives. Like, how many people on Twitter go, that was really a nice thing this yeah, guy did? Yeah, excellent story. That was an excellent story. <laughs> That's one out of a hundred, right? Yeah. No, said, you suck. I hope you get nose cancer. I hope all your kids die. That's what you get. Yeah. And I stopped looking at my Twitter mentions years ago. But if you worry about how the country's going to take it, you go out of your... I remember... And sometimes you're just dead wrong. Yeah. And you realize... Sure. I remember I wrote this column about cheerleading. And I said, come on, cheerleading's not a sport. Get it off my television set. You know, when I went to high school, there was two sports for girls. Now there's 12. Right. If you want to be an athlete as a girl, get in the, get on a team. Right. Well, it turns out cheerleading's a really, really hard sport. Right. With the second most injuries per capita. Yeah. Behind football, and um, I got all that. We broke all the records for hate mail at Sports Illustrated. <laughs> Did you feel like you deserved it? Oh yeah, yeah, I was totally wrong. And and reading the hate mail, I got it. But the hate mail from cheerleaders was not bad at all because they don't really do hate very well. Yeah. It'd be like, I hope you die, Mr. Riley, a little heart over the eye. Uh, <laughs> or they'd send a they'd send an email like. And I want you to know, Mr. Riley, I wrote this in a hard-to-read font on purpose. Right. I go, oh, six-point right, right. calligraphy. I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. You know? That's good. Um, I just, I, you said something interesting. Um, 
you told me before you start taping about which I really like the advice Mark Cuban gave you about uh... no no somehow I was interviewing Mark Cuban and he goes you're just gonna let just a perfect stranger just knock you he says would you leave the front door of your house open and let a perfect stranger come in with a baseball bat and hit you across the head no I, I guess I wouldn't well why do you let perfect strangers come in and and try to get you involved in in arguments back and forth. They're just trying to get attention and followers. Right. And he's right. Half of half of trolls are just trying to get more followers so they can start selling their tweets. Right, right. Do you um I don't know, like we were talking before, like clearly the, the sports illustrated we work for isn't it, it can't be what it was because print is dying at a very quick rate. Yes. Um there are fewer places to write for, there's definitely less money to be made. As you, you know, things have to be turned over super fast now. I don't know. There's no time to double check. No time to double check. The There's fact checking. There's so many outlets. I feel really. How do you feel about? I that? feel That's bad for for young sports writers. Now, I talked to some some kid the other day, and I could tell he was a good writer. I'd read a couple. He goes, "Yeah, I'm writing this for them. How much you get for that?" Well, I write that for free. Why are you writing for free? I mean, set your set your price. Right. You're good. Well, because I need it to get. No, no, well, do you have any writing gigs? Yeah, sometimes I write about the Lakers. How much you get for that? Twenty-five bucks. Right. But you're never going to make a living doing this. This isn't your hobby, right? No, I just feel bad because because people started writing for free and cheap. And now the market's completely dropped out for sports writing, and I think it's a really hard way to make a living. I mean, do you know anybody, except for the athletic, yeah. what new enterprise is paying anybody? I know. So do you, some 22-year-old kid comes up to you and is like, should I go into sports journalism? What do you tell him? Because you and I have had these joyful, I know. we could sit here and tell stories for eight hours, you know, like, I, I feel know. like the story, we always have the best stories at parties, you know, like, it's always like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's a real joy that's come from this profession. Do you remember the... Uh, Athens Olympics. I wasn't there, but I remember it existed. Every Tuesday night, SI would have a party. They spent $750,000 on each party. A barge would pull up and shoot off fireworks that ended with Sports Illustrated and fireworks. There was uh, actresses, models, all the athletes wearing their medals, maybe 300 people, two bands at each end. I mean, it was just a different world. People wanted to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. People wanted to be interviewed by Sports Illustrated. That was a hallmark. So they were welcoming you into their lives. Yeah. They wanted you to write about them. You know, I can remember showing, uh, telling, calling up Shannon Sharp saying, you made the cover for the coming Super Bowl. He went out of his mind. He was, I could hear him running around the locker room. Right. And people loved it. Now, I mean, they just sold. What's going to become of it? It got so thin. I feel bad for those guys. And they have still some very good writers, you know. They still got great writers. They still got great photographers. I think it's just, it's a very hard time for print media. And I mean, that's, I guess that's natural. This is, this is what's happened. Yeah. But I feel bad that the digital world doesn't pay anything to sports writers. Yeah, it's a bummer. Not much. No, it's a bummer. It's, I would say, if you want to go into sports journalism, try TV, try books, make sure what your work, the work you do is paid for, is right. valued. Did you ever get tired of covering sports? Like, did you ever just like, did you ever reach a point in your career where you're just like, I don't need to watch another fill-in-the-blank <laughs> Masters. I don't need to watch another, you know, like I remember my aunt's 
99-year-old mother. I was sitting at a diner like this with her. And I said, hey, how's it going? And she said, I just want to be dead. I swear to God. Because she'd seen the sunset enough times. You know what I mean? She'd seen the Eiffel Tower enough times. Like, yeah. I wonder, like, in sports, did you ever reach a point where you're like, I don't really need to see this anymore. I've seen enough. Or no? Really, from the beginning, I wasn't that into sports. Yeah. I just loved writing. Like, I loved you love writing more than sports. Way more. Yeah, me too. Uh, the reason I got into sports was um, I won the high school sports writing contest for high school writers. I voted Colorado. for the other guy. Just I didn't vote for you. Yeah, thanks a lot. And, uh, and I wanted to be, you know, Edward R. Murrow. I wanted to be, I wanted to be Woodhouse. I wanted to be Damon Runyon. That's the kind of writing I wanted to do. I win this contest. I was judged anonymously, and someone found the guy who had judged it found out it was me. I was working at a bank, going to high school, and he said, "How about a job?" And so, college freshman, I started at the Boulder Daily Camera. By the time I got out of Colorado, I had four years' experience writing sports. So that's what I went. But I, I always remember from the beginning, just before I started, Frank DeFord said something I'll never forget. He said, "I don't write about sports. I write about people who happen to." Play sports or be in sports. And that's totally. Like I purposely tried not to put numbers in my pieces. I always wanted to make it about people. Even 800 word poems, I wanted to make little movies. I wanted a beginning, a middle, an end. I wanted a conflict and the resolution. I wanted you to have, find little gold nuggets along the way to keep you reading. Same with my 10 page. I was thinking about, you know, we were talking about 10 page bonus stories, which is the big one at the back of this. Higher. There's not much long form. Journalism anymore, but I learned from Gary Smith, who I consider the greatest long-form sports writer ever. He made it so interesting. He made it so you couldn't stop. Like he did it in little chunks, and there was always like sometimes there'd be a A plot, B plot, C plot. There'd be italics. Um, I remember he uh, he did a piece on Dick Vermeil, and it was all about him watching tape and not recognizing the kid on the sideline, and it was his son. And it, was, and it was like a little story that played out in between the rest of the stories. Right. And so I think it was my own insecurity, because I got there so young, that I just I just was so afraid people were going to read the first paragraph and throw it away, that I tried to make that first paragraph kill. Right. And then I tried to keep them going. And even the way it looked, broken up, you know, italics, bold, this, that, caps, whatever you could do to get people reading. And uh, it turns out people... Like that, they right. they they did keep reading a lot of times, and so that was that's how I learned to write long. I was actually just thinking when you told the Dick for Meal, when you talked about Gary Smith writing a Dick, I was thinking like a lot of times I was telling. So I teach a journalism class at Chapman University in Orange County. I do. And uh, Chapman, Chapman, you know Chapman? Yeah. Yeah. And I was I was thinking how um, I always tell my students look for the small, right? Look for the small. No, it's not about Derek Jeter hitting 320. It's about the right. tattoo. It's like the scar on his ankle. Right. And I always think like Dick Vermeil, Dick Vermeil not recognizing his son on the sideline. Yeah. He may have not even remembered that happening a day after it happened. Right. But to Gary Smith, it's an immediate like neon light. It's a tell. Right. It's a tell about his life. Right. Yeah. I have 10 rules for writing and one of them no. is... What are your 10 rules for writing? <laughs> well, one of them is... Yeah. It's not always on the Wheaties box. Right. You know, it's not always the cover of the Wheaties box. It might be the kid at the end of the bench that hasn't played all year. Right. Or, you know, uh, the, the, the driver of the guy who's famous, you know. And, and he can tell you exactly who the guy is. Or it's uh, some little guy playing a sport. But it's the stories, the people's stories that you can relate to. Right. And you find that out in movies, too. It's, it's uh, in, in movies we say... 
find a guy, get him up a tree, throw rocks at him in the tree, and get him down the tree. Get him, make, see, people are interested, can he do the thing he wants to do? Maybe his whole thing in life is he wants to throw a ball across the across a river. And his whole life is trying to get, see if, get to the river, see if they can, he can do it. Right. And it doesn't matter if you're Barry Bonds or whatever. The, you know, the, the best stories, I thought, were the little guys. I remember I had this, found out about this cross-country runner in South Carolina. And his teammates would run the 3.1 miles or whatever it is in 17, 18 minutes. And he would run it in 53 minutes because he had cerebral palsy. His right side didn't work. But he refused to quit the team. And he kept, and in, in cross-country, you got to run across fields and logs. And, and he would fall. And if he fell to the right, he couldn't get his arm up in time to block his face. His face was all scarred up. His mom tried to get him to quit. And his coach tried to get him to quit. And he said, why don't you quit? And he goes, I can't quit on my team. And so towards the end of that season, his teammates started doing something amazing. They run back and run the last mile and a half with him just to support this kid at this incredibly slow pace. But in cross country, you can't touch your teammates. So they would run at a very slow pace just to be his teammate. Then the girls' team started doing it. And then the cheerleaders started doing it. And then this guy's last, the guy's name was Ben Coleman. And in the last meet of his life, every every kid on all the teams did it with him in that last mile and a half. And it was 200 kids. The finish line was 400 parents, most of them crying. The support for this kid who wouldn't quit on his team. And I remember writing that column, and I got an email from Kevin Costner, my actor. And he goes, oh, my God, I was crying about this column. And I want you to know, give me me his email address because I'm paying for his education. The rest, as far as he wants to go. And uh, the kicker to the story is Ben Coleman's now a doctor. Seriously. It's like we stuck it to Kevin Costner. Yeah, seriously. And we just killed him. <laughs> He's now going for his fifth PhD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Kevin. <laughs> wow. And you would always rather write that story than Mike Trout, great center fielder for the Indians. Yeah. Yeah. Columbine totally changed me. You know, I lived right near yeah. Columbine. And it, it just changed Wait, why? Me. Why do you say that? Because I had three guys on my softball team whose kids were in the cafeteria that day. Yeah. And this science teacher, a guy named Dave Sanders came in and got all 200 of those guys out. Unheard of science teacher who coached the girls' volleyball team. And then instead of going with them, he ran upstairs and tried to get people out of the science wing. Got shot in the back, crawled into the science room. The kids closed the door, put up a table, took him behind a table against the door, and tried to stanch the bleeding with their sweaters and their, and their you know, Kleenexes and everything, trying to keep this guy alive. And to keep him alive, they got out the yearbooks and started making him talk about teams he'd coached over the 20 years. And that guy died. That guy died with 100 cops and 50 ambulances right outside. And uh, one of the kids, Craig Barnes, who was in that room, was a junior on the basketball team. Scored 25 points a game that year. Killed himself that summer because he saw too much that day. And I'm like, what do I care about Barry Bonds and Derek Jeter and Tiger Woods? I'm going to write about these people. And I started I started to write about people at the end of the bench and small stories that, that you know, lifted people up. And that really made a difference in my life to, to, to tell these stories that mattered, you know, that made people rethink their lives. Like I'd get, you remember Faces in the Crowd? Of course. One time, uh, 
Richard Demack, the guy who ran it, said, you got to see this. And it was a letter from a guy who said, I want to nominate my son for Faces in the Crowd. He finished third in the something-something golf tournament. He's, he was he's 17 years old, and he once shot 72. And, we're, and we're, that's nothing. That's not Faces in the Crowd. And he goes, he died yesterday in a motorcycle accident. And his goal in life was to be in Faces in the Crowd. And I wish you'd put him in. And Demac sent me this letter, so I wrote a whole column about this kid. In the middle of the column was his picture and faces in the crowd. Oh, that's awesome. And it was just his lovely and how he saves the, uh, his voicemail saying, let's play golf today. And all the great things they did together, this father and son, because the mother had died. And to this day, I remember Tony Dungy read it and called the guy and had him on the sideline for that Super Bowl when the Colts won. Yeah. To this day, maybe once a month, I get an email about that. I put that column in with my dad's casket. Oh, this is the first time I was able to speak to my dad in five years because I realized how much he meant to me. To me, that's the whole reason to be a writer, to get at a truth that makes people think and, and live better. So that, that's been the best part of writing for me. And you live by the beach. <laughs> yeah, and I get to go to divey um, places. Um, well, I appreciate you doing this. It's been seriously fantastic. Yeah, I could do this all day. Yeah, I know I could too. <laughs> I want to thank today's guest, Rick Riley, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Rick on Twitter at RileyRick and visit his website at rickreillyonline.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on both iTunes and Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. The music you're listening to is from the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.